welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Raj Pruthi from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about robotic radical cystectomy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Teresa. I'm a resident at UCSF. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Raj Puthi, professor and chair here at UCSF. He's going to be talking to us this morning about robotic radical cystectomy. Um, Dr. Puthi gave the very first talk in this lecture series on non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So he's going to bring us around full circle today. So welcome, Dr. Puthi, and thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks, Krista. And uh, kind of w- welcome, everybody. Um, you know, I nod. Uh, dinner last night, my wife and I were talking about how I started here at UCSF in January and how we, on December 31st, New Year's Eve, we toasted to 2020 being the best year ever. And uh, it's really been quite the last six months, I think, for all of us thinking back on, you know, first COVID and then the last uh, three weeks have been uh, tough. And I know it is for everybody. Uh, You know, there's a lot of stress on everyone. And I would just encourage people to stay strong and stay together, take care of yourself and celebrate the success of finishing yet another academic year for those in training. And a particular shout out to the chief residents and fellows who are finishing up. Uh, congratulations on, on your, your uh, journey and your career. Um, so as Krista mentioned, I'm gonna talk a little bit about robotic radical cystectomy. Uh, kind of the last, it's, it's been 15 years now. I did the fir- uh, myself first one in January of 2005. And I think we've come a long way uh, in that. Uh, I want to tell a little bit of a story of, uh, of uh, what's called the Semmelweis effect. And I don't know if people have, are aware of that or know what that is. Uh, it is a metaphor for a certain type of behavior, kind of a reflex reje- rejection of new knowledge because it co- uh, contradicts entrenched norms, beliefs, and paradigms. And I can tell you, when we first did this and presented this at the AUA robotic cystectomy, all the uh, you know big leaders in urology lined up and told us how we were killing people and doing the wrong thing, and and um, uh, really really kind of uh, rejected it just outright because it was new and it was different. And just to take a couple of minutes, because I think it's an interesting story. So Ignaz Semmelweis was a Hungarian-born Austrian physician. He was an obstetrician who worked at Vienna General Hospital. And he noticed that in one clinic, what they call the first clinic, had uh, puerperal infections, rate, mortality rates of 20%. And that was three times that of the second clinic. And in fact, many times higher even than women whose babies were born in the streets of Vienna. And the infection rates in the first clinic, uh, the only difference in the first clinic was the first clinic was staffed by physicians and medical students and the second clinic by uh, uh, midwives. And typically at the time, the doctors didn't wash their hands between deliveries or going from the uh, post-mortem morgue to do dissections or back. So he introduced hand washing and had an infection rate from 20% uh, mortality to less than 1% and postulated that there was some contaminating material transferred onto doctors on clean hands. But he couldn't offer any scientific evidence or explanation. But at the time, the doctors were so offended at the notion that they, they, they would have unclean hands uh, as gentlemen are, and uh, they should wash their hands that they mocked him. Because it was also in contradiction with the notion of the four humors and dysgrasias and bloodletting of the time. And he became so obsessed with his findings he wrote many letters and wrote a book in 1861, but was criticized by many leading authorities in the field, including uh, Rudolf Virchow, who's, who's known to be the father of modern pathology. Uh, and so he was just, with his obsession, he turned to excessive drinking. And at one point with a colleague, they thought he'd kind of gone off the deep end. He was lured into an insane asylum. Uh, and once he sort of figured out what was going on, uh, I think they told him he was going to a new institute uh, he tried to escape, and they put a straitjacket on him, and the guards beat him. And two weeks later, he died in the asylum. And it was only a few years later, in 1865, 
that uh, I'll be in a few, actually shortly, week, uh, shortly later, the same year, 1865, that uh, Pasteur and Lister put forth their theory of disease, of the germ theory of disease uh, with it. So I, I think it's just sort of a, an interesting story of how sometimes when you start off with something, you know, you're going you're gonna to get reflex rejection of something. But I think if, if it's the right thing, it's important to persevere, hopefully not to the point of excessive drinking or being uh, beaten in an insane asylum. But, but I think sometimes, and I'll show you this, that I think the message of how you deliver that also is important. So I'm going to review with you the, the, the data, the evidence over the last 15 years of robotic versus open cystectomy, and then review some of the steps with some video of performing the procedure. I mean, right now, uh, I think that the, the data is, uh, it used to be in, in uh, 2008, I think it was like one or 2% of cystectomies are done robotically. Now that number is somewhere like about 25% to 30%. It's usually often overstated by industry. This is true for every procedure. Uh, I think the industry will, will tell you that everybody else is doing it and you need to be doing it. But that's not true. It's about 25, maybe 30% of cystectomies are done robotically. Um, this is a quote from uh, Campbell's Urology uh, in 1954, the first edition. And this, the cystectomy chapter was written by Campbell uh, himself. And it's really, it shows you even in the last, I guess it's 70 years now, we've really come quite a long way even doing this openly. Um, I think, you know, we've learned over time that cystectomy has very high morbidity and mortality complication rates, 90 day complication rates are on the order of two thirds to three quarters of patients will have them. Half of these tend to be between 30 and 90 days also. So it's not just all perioperatively or shortly after discharge. Readmission rates 27 and that number actually more recent CR Medicare studies have been in the 40s. Um, uh, and then a uh, 90-day mortality rate of about 10%. Um, and again, half of those of the mortality will happen uh, 30 to 90 days. So I think obviously this is a big challenge, but I think an opportunity for us to do things better and improve outcomes. Some of the ways we can improve outcomes that we're looking at is improving multimodal therapy for bladder cancer, um, better perioperative chemotherapy, neoadjuvant, adjuvant, and really the need for novel agents um, that are perhaps less toxic. But I think what I want to focus on is things like we talk about uh, here is care pathways, and all of us are using more and more of these. If we have time, I'll touch on that. But I want to talk to you about robotic cystectomy. Um, it's interesting, the adoption of these techniques. I, I actually was, as a medical student, had the opportunity to uh, be on a, a paper uh, with, with uh, somebody I did research with on lap cholecystectomies in, in the New England Journal in 1991, I think it was. And it really had a lot of initial resistance. I mean, it's interesting to me because now we wouldn't think of doing a cole any other way but laparoscopically. And, but at the time, this was really kind of heresy to talk about doing it any other different way than an open uh, right subcostal incision. A nephrectomy, uh, which was first done by uh, Dr. Clayman, Ralph Clayman, uh, became much more easily adopted. And I think it was also, to go back to the Semmelweis kind of experience, um, really the messenger helped there. And I think Dr. Clayman was a kind of a, a more gentle sort of uh, an evidence-based discussion of how things are done and can be done. And cystectomy, uh, we, we've come a long way from the kind of almost stem to stern kind of incision. Um, now we don't typically, or I don't typically do, if I do it open, do an incision all the way up to the xiphoid. It's typically a, a sub-umbilical uh, incision. But now robotically, it's kind of a different kind of, you can see incisions. And I think in the 15 years, uh, probably as much as any other uh, surgery I can think of, it really was done in a very, you know, the evidence in, in a much more kind of careful uh, uh, manner. Um, what are the potential benefits of robotic cystectomy? I mean, I think less pain, less blood loss, you know, benefits which we, we've seen with prostatectomy. Uh, uh, also less fluid imbalances and bowel manipulation by doing the extirpative portion of the operation uh, within the, the, the body cavity. Concerns, and these are significant, is first and foremost is the oncologic integrity of the operation. Uh, 
unlike, I think, prostate cancer, bladder cancer is a rather unforgiving disease, right? Margins matter. Margins can be lethal. And we don't have great salvage therapies for that, like we might with salvage radiation therapy for prostate cancer. People have worried about prolonged OR times, complications, are they high or are they not? What are the costs? What are the learning curves? Is this something that's just a surgical stunt at academic centers? Uh, or is this widely, uh, can be disseminated in the community? And again, I think when we think about robotics, we, we are, many of us are at academic centers, so we're used to rapid adoption of technology, but this isn't, I think a true success of our procedures, can this be done uh, where much of urology practice is done, which is in the community. And I'm gonna to touch on things at the beginning and end of the concepts of value. So this is a Michael Porter concept. Value is outcomes over cost. So higher costs don't have to be a bad thing, as long as the outcomes that are associated with it are, are at least as good or higher to give us the value. So if we can, if something costs a little bit more, but the outcomes are much better, that provides value to our patients. So let's talk about how do we evaluate surgical quality and value for bladder cancer. Um, these are some of the things, and we're gonna go through these along the way, oncologic outcomes, margins, lymph node yield. We'll talk a little bit about morbidity, and then we'll look a little bit at costs also. And I'm gonna to try to define these, whether it's an advantage to robotic cystectomy, a disadvantage to robotic cystectomy based on the evidence, or that there's no difference at all. So let's first talk about the oncologic outcomes. So this is a, a paper that was written by Dr. Herr in a collaborative group report back in 2004 and said, what are, what are the quality measures for cystectomy, for proficiency? Well, you should do at least 10 a year. Your margin status should be less than 10%. You should have at least 10 to 14 uh, uh, lymph nodes. And you should do the lymph node dissection in 80% of the cases. So here's some of the results uh, of, um, of a, a number of series on robotic cystectomy. Um, and, and you can see here in sort of the force plot that bottom line of this is there's really no difference in the soft tissue margin rates between the two. Um, there's really no difference between open and robotic. These, these often aren't head to head, but we have some data on that as well. How about lymph node yield? Uh, this was a uh, small study we did. Uh, it was a prospective randomized study of open versus robotic cystectomy. And we looked at non-inferiority uh, uh, non of lymph node yield. Uh, and the, what we found in lymph node yield was 19 versus 18. Uh, and this was again, I think back in 2007, 2008. And it, it was an opportunity when we did this that we thought it was our unique opportunity where back in 2007, patients didn't care about whether they had an open or robotic. A bladder cancer patients are a little different than prostate cancer. And at that time, there were very few people did it robotically. So it was an opportunity for us to look at things in a prospective way. Um, and I wanna show you sort of a lymph node yield in a variety of other studies that, that have been done. You see numbers 191838 um, and that compares to Dr. Herr's collaborative group kind of recommendation of 12.5. Remember, he said 10 to 14. So, I mean, all of this is comparing one case series to the other. But I think it's, it's we can say that at least, at the very least, there's no difference in lymph node yield. Uh, this would suggest uh, maybe a little bit better, but I think to, to be conservative, no difference there. Um, and last and most importantly is survival. You know, a variety of sort of initial studies here where we looked at two-month follow-up and when we looked at disease or recurrence-free and disease-specific survival, really no difference between what we would expect open and robotic. Here's a variety of other studies. Again, look, comparing uh, uh, the follow-up recurrence-specific overall survival. And again, when you look at the numbers, they tend to be in line with what we see in this early John Stein study, which was all open series and some of the robotic studies. Um, and more studies looking at, uh, um, this is looking at some CR uh, uh, Medicare data, uh, or Medicare data, and really no difference here between open and robotic as far as survival. This is recurrence-free and then cancer-specific survival. Um, 
not st statistically different for any of those. So I think it's fair to say in the data that we have, there's no difference in recurrence, free disease specific or overall survival. And I wanna share with you uh, the results of what's called the RAZOR trial. So the RAZOR trial is really a very interesting trial because it, it, it's, it's a large number of patients, it's multi-institutional, um, and, and the same surgeon did whether it was open or robotic and was proficient in both. And this was an NCI-sponsored trial of open versus robotic cystectomy uh, with three years of follow-up. Uh, in the original study of the, the RAZOR trial was in Lancet, and this is a, a study, uh, the follow-up from this year looking at survival. You see no difference in recurrence, three-year and uh, three year progression free or overall survival. Uh, progression free survival at three years <coughs> was about, <coughs> excuse me, the same in open versus robotic, as was overall survival between the two groups. Um, let me switch a little bit over and talk about the morbidity. So I think when we think oncologically, we are not doing a disservice to our patients by doing this robotically. So uh, we're not hurting them or killing them in this unforgiving disease by doing it this way. It's just a different surgical technique. Let's talk a little bit about some of the perioperative outcomes to this. Um, let's start with blood loss. So this was in the, the next trial, which was published in 2008, which was our randomized study of the open versus robotic. Uh, and I, I'm just going to show you here some of the perioperative outcomes. Blood loss significantly lower in the robotic group or time significantly lower in the open group, and we're going to touch on ore time in a minute. Some of the bowel function, <coughs> excuse me, a um, little faster robotically, no difference in length of stay, uh, less uh, morphine equivalence in the robotic group. Uh, this is a variety of other study uh, of meta-analysis looking at the different studies of open versus robotic. You can see difference in blood loss between the two significantly. Uh, and in OR time in a variety of studies. And we're gonna get into some of these other factors shortly. This looked at is a, again, a forest plot of blood loss and uh, transfusion rates, both less likely favoring robotic cystectomy uh, uh, versus open. Uh, so, I, and I think, I think, I think we, we know that, and even just experientially, Robotics has less blood loss than open for the extirpative portion, whether it be to the the um, the, the pre insufflation pressors with venous oozing or the, the ability to kind of see small amounts of bleeding and cauterize them. I showed you this like in our study that uh, it was significantly shorter in the open group than the robotic group at three and a half hours versus four point two hours. A number of studies and have shown about that the robotic can be about an hour and 15 minutes longer than the open. And I think when you look at the force plots, these are significantly favor a, a disadvantage robotically with regard to operating room time by about 74 minutes. And some people have said, well, it doesn't, or time doesn't matter. I think, I think it does. I think it's not to be just dismissed or the patient's under anyway. I think or time is a cost, right? It's a, financial costs, it's an opportunity cost if we're operating longer on one person versus the other, uh, then we're taking more resources in the operating room. Studies have shown there's direct correlations between OR time in laparoscopy and OR time and with complications. So it, it's not to say that longer OR time is meaningless. I do think that there, it, it matters and it's, it's an important thing for us to at least assess. Um, Pain, uh, this is where we saw less morphine equivalents. Uh, Kush and Guru also in a study that they did showed a significant lower use of morphine equivalents in, uh, in the time in the hospital. They were keeping their patients here up to eight days or longer, but significantly less narcotic use. So I think this is something also experientially you see is less with that, uh, with robotics. Uh, length of stay, you tend to see, so, in some studies, about a, uh, 1.3 days less for robotics. Uh, and this was in a number of studies, the mean difference was up to three days. But it's important to note in the, the four randomized studies that, that have been done or somewhat randomized studies, including our own, there's no difference in length of stay. So I think 
you know, when you look at the data, some of the top data is, is pretty strong for lower length of stay, but I think potentially, uh, I think if you're doing an ERAS kind of pathway protocol, then that that's often really kind of the, the game changer more than robotics or open. So this might be an advantage for robotics. Complications. Um, in our initial 100 uh, cases of robotic cystectomy, we had 41 complications in 36 patients. Um, most commonly GI and urinary tract infections. This study showed that robotic approach was an independent predictor of lower complications than open with 90-day complication rates about 50%. Most were low-grade infectious and GI also. Uh, some high-grade complications. And again, half of the high-grade coming between 30 and 90 days. So again, if you make it out 30 days, you're, you're, you're not necessarily done. And factors predicting high-grade complications uh, uh, were age, uh, fluid, amount of fluid resuscitation, and blood loss. So complications, um, fewer complications are seen in a met this meta-analysis of robotics and open. In the randomized trials of 239 patients, the only thing that was ever seen is lower wound complications with robotics. So I think, though, that when you look at this, that at least, at the very least, it's wound complications, but potentially all complications might have an advantage. And I want to kind of finish up talking a little bit about uh, some of the factors related to quality of life. So we looked at a patient that a two-year follow-up of using the fact bladdered SF12 open versus robotic. We found no difference in the domains at two years, except for ones related to sexual function, interest in sex, and ability to have and maintain an erection, there was difference. All of the other factors, there was no significant difference. So it might say that except for sexual function, it doesn't, two years after the event, maybe it doesn't really matter which approach that you've had. And I think that to me that, that makes uh, sense. It's a different study that showed higher physical well-being at six months in a shorter time period um, in the robotic group Another study showing no difference in the fact bladder of the patients. So I think in the long term, two years out, it doesn't matter which you have. Maybe in the short term at six months uh, or less, and maybe with regard to sexual function, it may benefit robotics uh, approach. The last thing I want to touch on before we start talking about the procedure is the cost of the operation. So as I've done sort of more work looking at costs, it, it's... The more you look at it, the more complicated it really is because it's not just lining up what I'm going to show you here are fixed OR costs, variable OR costs, and hospital costs, but it's things like recovery. It's just where do you draw the circles on cost? Uh, how far out? A month out? Three months out? Is it going back to work or is it not? And what, how do you, what utilization of resources are you looking at? Um, so let's talk a little bit about this. So we went back and looked at our, our randomized trial and found that the difference between open and robotic, you can see here there's an $800 difference, but it was uh, not statistically significant. Most of the difference here is in, the, is in uh, the OR capital and reusable cost. So that is the, the capital equipment of buying the robot, uh, which is typically amortized over seven years. So it has a higher fixed cost. The post-operative cost you can see favors robotic. Some of, the, some of that is a big ticket items or things like length of stay or transfusion rates. Uh, uh, but no, not significantly different uh, statistically. Another study by Eric Castle's group at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale comparison, they found when comparing direct OR costs, robotic was a little bit ex more expensive. When you looked at total patient costs, it was less expensive. Um, Jim Hugh did a, did a comparative national study looking at this and found no difference in the cost uh, of open versus uh, robotic, uh, 24,000 versus 21,000, uh, not statistically significant. So I think there's an uncertain impact. I think the data, everything we've seen would suggest there's not a difference in the financial cost. And if we were to take this out further, maybe at one month or three months, if we say that there is a short-term impact on quality of life or recovery, maybe that there might be a benefit to robotics. So in breaking it down robotic versus open, I think there's a lot of things where they're comparable. 
basically cancer outcomes, costs, maybe outcomes, longer term quality of life. There's some potential benefits with robotics, blood loss, transfusion, bowel function, complications, but there's certainly also some negatives in the OR time. So going back to our Michael Porter construct of value, um, when we think of sort of uh, outcomes, so we have better outcomes from th this standpoint, which favor robotics. The cost is OR time, right? Uh, so again, it's a, it's a real cost, but is that extra hour or whatever, in our hands it was about 40 minutes, 45 minutes in the operating room worth these outcomes um, and no difference over here. I, I think there is value in this. I think those outcomes of less complications potentially stay in transfusion do justify uh, a robotic approach in, in most patients. Now, if I have an, an older uh, patient with a lot of comorbidity, an 86-year-old patient with pulmonary issues and so forth, I, I'll, be, I'll do that case open. I don't do every case robotically. I don't think every case should be done robotically. I think especially patients with some pulmonary comorbidity where the steep Trendelenburg position is tough, I'll get them on and off the table in a supine position. Or again, a patient's a little bit older and sicker, get them on and off the table because OR time then becomes important. Uh, but somebody who could tolerate that a little bit better, I think then these benefits add value. So don't do every patient open or every patient robotic, <coughs> apply that <coughs> to each patient. I would say probably two thirds of the patients, I think in my, in my view, I'll do robotically and I think are candidates for that. But, but 25, 30%, just, just get them on and off the OR table, I think is, is, a, is a benefit. So uh, just to kind of summarize what we talk about, I do think it can add value to the care of, some, of certain patients a uh, little bit lower risk patients, not just not the highest um, com uh, complex patients to do this. So let's talk a little bit about now switch gears to the procedure. And pl please feel free if you guys have questions, the format doesn't, I don't think allow you to do it during, but put it in the Q&A or, or raise your hand or in, in the chat. I think the chat function shared with everybody, but, uh, and we'll, we'll certainly have time and address these at the end. Um, the um, uh, preparation, you do need the necessary experience. We'll talk a little bit about that. Pick the right pa patient, uh, the, and we have to talk about perioperative care and then the procedural steps as well. So prior experience, I don't think robotic cystectomy should be your first robotic case. In my opinion, I think I would overcome the robotic prostatectomy learning curve. Uh, and you know, get get facile with that. I think most of us are like now in our experience and our training. We do a lot of robotic prostatectomies. So get get over that learning curve and feel comfortable. I would start with a male patient, and the reason for that is I think we're we after doing the robotic prostatectomy learning curve, we're much more facile and comfortable with the male robotic anatomy. So start with the male patient, uh, uh, where you'll be much more familiar with some of the anatomy from prostatectomy. Uh, remember, there's less room for error with a cystectomy than a prostatectomy, and you should build in and, and expect longer uh, case times. Initially, we had a couple hours longer for, for robotic. It took us about 40 cases where from our learning, we, we used OR time as our learning curve, where the OR times were not significantly different. Actually, it took us three hours maybe longer for robotic than open. It started off closer to six hours, six to seven hours, and our open was more like three to four. And by, uh, it was pretty rapid, but by the 40th case, we had gotten down to about uh, similar OR times. So carefully select your patient up front. I mean, you don't want to wait forever for the right patient, but certainly you're going to do this. You're going to be in the OR. You're going to be on a stage. There's going to be all eyes on you, okay? You know, Dr. Chu's doing this robotic cystectomy. We've never seen it before. And, you know, you don't want to pick the patient with bulky disease, a sick patient. Uh, you want to pick a low-volume, non-bulky T2, or maybe even a recurrent non-invasive patient. Don't do a radiated or prior prostatectomy patient or a morbidly obese patient. You know, common sense stuff. These are the instruments I use, and, and I'm happy to share with, this, with anybody kind of at the end, uh, I'll share with you my email, just email uh, me. I think this will be posted on the site too. So I'll tend to use a fenestrated bipolar in my left hand and then a monopolar scissors in my right for most of the case. 
I'll use this right here. This is ca called a grasping retractor. It's a bowel grasper and it has a, not a very uh, strong closing pressure. So you can manipulate the bowel without causing a crush injury. Uh, I'll typically do most with zero degrees. Sometimes I'll switch to 30 degrees down with a lymph node dissection so I can look back on myself. Uh, and then the assistant, these are, are the, uh, the instruments for, uh, for the assistant. The suture, a uh, th couple 3-0 silks of about eight inches long, or sometimes I'll do even longer, tied to, you can see here, the hemolock clip to tag the ureters. I'll, you don't have to do this, but so I like sometimes tagging the distal ilium uh, for vaginal enclosure, just a zero vicral on a CT. And I'll use a CT1 or CT2 for the DVC back bleeding on a, on a male. Uh, other uh, supplies, hemolock clips uh, for the ureters and pedicles. I really like using that a large endo GIA, the 60 millimeter load. Some people use the ligature for the pedicles if you don't use a stapler but I like, I like the stapler. Uh, it's quick and easy. Um, so outpatient prep, uh, we don't use uh, mechanical or antibiotic prep, regular diet the day before surgery, steep Trendelenburg position. And again, you wanna limit the intraoperative fluids, uh, run them a little bit on the dry side during the case. So these are the port placements. I'll typically, even prostates, I'll typically have the assistant on the left side. So I'm used to that. Um, I think it doesn't matter in a prostatectomy, but in a cystectomy, I do think it's a little bit easier to have the assistant on the left. The camera is about 22 to 24 centimeters above the pubis. And this is a little bit higher than what I would do in a prostatectomy, uh, because again, you wanna be able to dissect back on your lymph nodes. And then about eight centimeters towards the ASIS, and then eight centimeters uh, laterally, and same thing there, and then for the assistant ports, put like a, uh, uh, what I'll do, a 15 port here, because uh, we're gonna use this for, for lymph nodes. But I no longer use the 12 here, I just move this over to here and use my 12 here, and then I get rid of this port. So I have a 12 here where my stapler comes in and then the 15 here for the assistant. And this can also be used for the suction. So this is kind of what it looks like. However, again, we've moved this, gotten rid of this, and put this over here where the five is. So let's talk about surgical steps. Um, this is sort of the list of surgical steps. I'll take you through this. First is isolation of the ureters. We'll talk about this. You wanna avoid grasping the ureters in a crush injury or any thermal injury or excessive traction. I'll show you this. I don't put this second clip here, distal clip anymore, unless they have a stent in, because most patients won't reflux. So if you just do a distal clip on this side, you can just cut beyond if they have a stent, they might reflux, but I like not having this clip here so it doesn't in the future get in the way of my uh, endo-GIA. So this is that grasping retractor here. There's the appendix and terminal ilium. And here we're just doing a, um, uh, a stitch in the terminal ilium. I'll, if I do this, I'll usually do it right away at the beginning of the operation. I find it easier uh, right away. And then there's our left ureter. It's usually right at the level of where, of, see this little fold right here, kind of comes in almost right at that, yeah. <clears throat> um, and there's a ureter coming across and the iliac's going straight up. Um, and so the first thing is just kind of a lift up and then a light uh, score superficially on the peritoneum, uh, get some air under there and get exposure to the retroperitoneum and then kind of bluntly kind of work our way underneath and isolate the ureters. Um, uh, yeah, just, you know, some of the vessels come underneath and uh, take this down to the bladder. I won't do a lot of proximal dissection here. I like to, I don't tunnel the ureters robotically. I used to do that, um, but I'll do that open in order to make sure I have a wide enough window in, uh, in the kind of the retrosigmoid uh, uh, presacral space. So here you can see the clip coming in with the, with the tag and we'll cut that, uh, clip it and then cut distally. So I'm going to grab the, the ureter by the clip. Um, so yeah, I won't dissect proximally because I'm going to open that up and I can do some of that bluntly 
if I do an extracorporeal diversion uh, openly, because I'd rather get my hand in there and make sure that that tunnel is wide enough. So I think a lot of strictures, especially on the left side, happen uh, as it kind of comes over and bends underneath. So here, again, we're scoring the peritoneum over the ureter. Um, sometimes if, I can't, if I'm struggling to find the ureter, then I'll actually do the, I'll show you shortly, the posterior dissection and the lateral dissection, and then come back to the ureter, and then that'll leave the ureters kind of isolated along with the pedicle and much easier to find. And here we're, again, some blunt dissection, a little bit of lateral stuff we can buzz and take down. And then I'm starting to use the robotic clip applier more and more. Uh, and here we're, again, cutting through the ureter distally. I don't typically send a margin on the ureters. Uh, there's been studies that show that it doesn't predict anything locally. If you have a positive margin, then that predicts higher risk of downstream uh, upper tract disease, but it doesn't even pick the side of the upper tract disease. Um, next, we're gonna talk about, so we've gotten the ureters. Let's talk a little bit about blunt dissection distally. Uh, you wanna take it as far as you can apically but don't get carried away. You don't need to get to the apex of the prostate. I'll come back and discuss a little bit about the, 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 uh, the ureters in a moment. So here you can see the rectum is gonna be down here. You don't have to be down right at the reflection. I'll take it a little bit higher. Because here my goal is to avoid, again, anything near the, the rectum and we're gonna come across. So right where our ureters come in, we're gonna connect the dots. And you can almost see our seminal vesicles there. Our rectum's gonna be below us down here. And I'm staying high, right? I'm staying right underneath it, right underneath the prostate and the bladder. Um, but going back to the ureters, the, so it predicts upper tract recurrence, but it doesn't predict which side you're going to have it on. So it doesn't, by ha knowing I have a positive uh, margin or, or uh, dysplasia there, I, I don't, it doesn't give me actionable information. There's been a number of studies that have shown that. So I typically don't send the urethral margin unless there's something gross there that I'm concerned about. So there was our posterior dissection. Um, again, I just took it as far as I, I needed to. Um, next, we're going to move on to the lateral, and we'll get we can get further later on in the case. Um, laterally, we won't take down the medial umbilicals. Blunt dissection, don't dissect too lateral, and in a, a nerve spiral. So there's our medial umbilical, and you see we'll incise just lateral to that because I want to preserve the medial umbilicals to provide some anterior support to the bladder. The first time I did this operation, again, back in 2005, the first thing I did was drop the bladder, just like a prostate. Uh, and it, it, was, it was a hassle because, um, see here, I'm just incising the peritoneum all the way. That was the medial umbilical coming over. And I'll get to that late, uh, later. And I'm, I'm a little more deliberate here in my dissection versus a prostatectomy where you can kind of storm through this. But in that first case, when we drop the bladder, like a prostatectomy, um, so there's our vas, and we're gonna come through bipolar and then come through that, and then we'll come through the medial umbilical. But when we drop the bladder, then we, then we have to go posterior, and we had the bladder kind of drop down, and that was more difficult. So now, it's just a matter of going posterior first while the bladder is suspended naturally. And even here, I'll keep the medial umbilicals anteriorly. Here, I'm coming through them laterally. You don't have to do this, but I think it's nicer because it helps kind of narrow the pedicle a little bit. So now we're here laterally, and then I'm going to take it down to the endopelvic fascia. In a nerve spare, which I alluded to before, I'm going to stay above the endopelvic. It helps keep me away from the nerves. In a non-nerve spare, I can incise the endopelvic fascia and lets my stapler go a little bit deeper. And like I said, just, just be a little more deliberate in this and maybe what you do in a prostatectomy because bladder cancer, you can have a little more uh, neovascularity. So here's a non-nerve spare, so we're going to incise the endopelvic. See that lets us get through a little bit. There, the prostate's right there to the left. And then we're, we have kind of the pre-rectal prostatic fat, and the prostate is right up there. And you can see there's a sense that the ang it angles up, so keep that in mind that it feels like everything kind of, the rectum angles up. So here we have laterally, we're good. And then underneath, there's our vas. We've got a good plane there. Um, and then 
here, and I think this is shorter, we're gonna do the same thing on the other side. Usually I'll try to do, you do both clean up the right and left so that I'm ready to go with my stapler for both sides there, again, through the vast, through the medium, medial umbilical. <clears throat> See the beauty of kind of editing here that we just kind of already down to the, through the endopelvic on that side. And again, you can see the prostate just there to the right of the scissors. And again, you're really getting a sense where the pedicle is, right and where the tips of the, the vas are. So I think being right underneath there, and again, remember it sort of slopes up a little bit. So keep that in mind so you don't dive into the rectum. Um, and then I think after we do this, we have our endo-GIA, Sometimes you have to articulate it up one or uh, or two. Yeah, there, there it's articulated up a little bit again to, to get that sense of the pedicle of the rectum angling up. I like the endo-GIA. I think it's quick, it's easy. Um, if I'm gonna, um, if I were to accidentally snare a little bit of the rectum, at least I have staple, a staple line below me that hopefully will protect that. And that's again, really what I'm watching here is make sure we're, we're above and that, that's angling nicely there. Um, and in a nerve sphere, if we stay above the endopelvic, so I'll staple down one, and then I'm gonna try to use hemolock clips and cold scissors to then do a nerve spare just like you would with a prostatectomy. So this is a non-nerve sphere, but before I leave this side, I put a hemolock clip, almost like a marker here, um, uh, that I'll get through. So when I come anterior, I'll be able to see this clip of how far I got to. Um, uh, so there we're, we're done on both sides and then we'll be done uh, posteriorly. So here, like with, with you, she spared the endopelvic then this could be part of your nerve spare. Um, and then this is just a stapler obviously on the other side we take it, we'll clip that, and then, and if you need to, you can do a second staple fire and a non-nerve spare here. Um, and so you can get well past the prostate. But if you needed to do more posterior, you could, this is the time you could do it. So here we are doing that, we're gonna take a second fire here underneath and get well past the prostate. Okay. Uh, so we, we looked at that stapler, uh, keep oriented, watch the rectum. So now anterior dissection, I think I showed you that before, similar to a prostatectomy. Again, be careful of the neovascularity. I'll try to isolate the urethra and hemolock it. Uh, Here again, something you're, you're, you're similar, you're familiar with from a prostatectomy. The only difference, it's a little bit of a different field because you've really freed up the bladder. So the bladder is much more mobile here. Um, here we're just kind of coming through. Let me make sure we're good on time. And then here we're gonna use that, that third arm or fourth arm to pull back and then there's our prostate and we're gonna do handle the DVC just like we would of, uh, in a prostatectomy. Again, you can see the mobility of the whole specimen much more than a prostatectomy because we have everything posterior freed up. So it looks like maybe a CT2 we're gonna take and ligate the DVC. This was really interesting, you know, when we, I mentioned about dropping the bladder first. Uh, there's so many little parts of this operation when we first did it, because there wasn't a roadmap that we had to do is realizing that, or even when we did it extracorporeally, we never tagged the ureters. Uh, 
So we had, we had a lot of trouble. Now I'm putting a back bleeding stitch in there. We never could find the ureters when we made a small open incision. And so those things like that, or even our initial like midline incision was too high. So just figuring out where to put your ports and where to kind of move things around, I think is, was, was uh, very interesting uh, at the time because there was nothing to fall back on except kind of past experiences of what worked and what didn't work. So here you can see we're kind of isolating the urethra. Again, this is non-nerve sparing. We would be coldly taking off anything there. Um, some people don't believe in doing nerve sparings for cystectomies. I think for patients with preoperative potency and don't have disease, I think it's, it's certainly appropriate. So you can see us here getting kind of around the urethra there. So then you, what you want to do is kind of withdraw the catheter um, and then uh, we'll hemolock that. I think we're we're waiting. So the catheter has come out there. There actually, it just went out there. You can see it come through there. So it goes in and then out, and then we could clip. Prox. I like to clip proximally and distally. I like to close off the urethra. Um, it's. Uh, I think here either like here if we if we don't do it distally, then I'll put a stitch in there. Uh, sometimes if I can get a clip distally, I'll just do that. I don't like le leaving open. I don't put a catheter in there. Uh, and then here I'm taking urethral margin. Um, because I think if you keep a catheter in there, which some people do for a drain, I think it, first of all, patients that go through this, they've had catheters a lot in their TRBTs and waking up with a Foley and having it in as a drain is just a bit of a downer. So I think if we can get rid of the catheter, that's good. The other thing too is if I leave a catheter in or leave this open, that these patients will come back six weeks after and talk about drainage from their penis. And it's just a little bit bothersome to them. So I'll go ahead and tie off that because it is a mucosalized surface. So I think if we can tie that off um, and then we'll put in the large, uh, again, ensure that the urethral apex is secured with a hemolock or a stitch. And then I'll get the, uh, the, I'll move my bag from the 15 to the 12 ports and my 15 is open for my node dissection. Um, I'm just gonna just briefly show you this, sort of the, the landmarks, which all of you know for a node dissection. There's a lot of discussion whether now and studies that are coming out that maybe some of the more, ex more extensive node dissection may not have value. We'll see what happens out of all of that. I think at least an, an obturator external and some of a, at least some of a common, maybe all the common uh, are probably worth it. I don't typically do a periodic or presacral node dissection. I'm just going to kind of zip through this with a female patient. Uh, uh, it's um, I'll typically maybe do like in size and do a periurethral dissection, kind of like in a sling procedure. Uh, some people do a complete vaginal dissection to free all of this up. I'll just release the the mucosa kind of around it. Uh, you just had the bladder is thin, so just be careful that you don't tear into it. Most cases, I'll do a vaginal sparing unless the, the exam or the CT scan shows me other si otherwise. Uh, I'll err on the vaginal side. I can repair that. Uh, I'll often do a transcervical hysterectomy. Uh, this was actually taught to me by one of our gynecologic oncologists because we're not doing this for cervical cancer to maximize vaginal length. In cases of a neobladder, I won't go past the end of pelvic uh, fascia. And then close the va uh, vagina and do a paravaginal fixation. I'm gonna skip up a small video on the, on the female. And then finishing up, um, I think you, you wanna bring the, the, the uh, ureters back into the pelvis. Uh, uh, the long suture I, I bring out through the ports uh, and sometimes separate them. Sometimes now we use a uh, purple uh, suture for the left side and a white for the right. I don't think it matters. You're gonna know what's right or left. Um, in the neobladder, I'll pre-place my anastomotic sutures in the urethra. I don't redock anymore. I'll just do that open, but with my pre-placed anastomotic suture, that makes that a lot easier. And then undock the diversion, a seven to eight centimeter incision. I mentioned the first time we did it, we used that camera port going down, which was too high, go midway between the umbilicus and the pubis. Don't go too, uh, too far, far up. 
make a new incision if you have to. Again, this is where I'll identify and tunnel the ureters and perform my diversion and my neobladder urethral anastomosis open. Um, again, here are the pre-placed anastomotic sutures in the urethra, at least at five and seven, those tough posterior stitches. Um, so here's somebody with a, with a conduit. And then when we're done and kind of how it looks like. Uh, this is um, we some of our early experience with uh, a lady. We did a, a intracorporeal diversion and extracted the, the specimen through the, the vagina. Um, but I want to talk about like uh, setting yourself up for success again. I would set specific goals and time limits. Okay, I'm going to get through the bladder and lymph nodes, and and or I'm just going to get through the bladder this time. Don't turn this into an eight, nine, ten hour operation. I think you're going to lose a lot of confidence in your OR team. You're going to put the patient at risk. Start with limit yourself to three or four hours for the robotic, and then move to open. That's fine. Limit the time and risk to the patient. Uh, again, maybe the cystectomy robotically and lymphadenectomy open. Measure your outcomes. Are you doing the right lymph node yield and margin rates with your prior? Uh, use internal benchmarks and external benchmarks. Uh, assess, success, assess your successes and failures. I think watching video is critical of yourself and others. When you go back and you, you look at the video, even in a great case, you'll see things that you could have done better. So I really encourage that. It's a little bit of a time commitment. And, and don't, don't play games with this. It is true that it is an unforgiving disease. Um, I'm gonna skip through this idea of pathways. I think we, we're out of time, but that's a little extra. Um, and this was sort of a, a video of an intracorporeal diversion, but I wanna, we're kind of running out of time and sort of uh, take any questions anybody might have. I'll let this play while we're answer questions maybe. Just a, a background intracorporeal diversion. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Thank you for a great talk. Um, I love that it was really geared towards trainees and towards us, you know, coming out of training, thinking about how we might transition to a robotic approach. Um, I guess a shameless plug for UCSF is that we do have very good representation of both open and robotic techniques here. So we get to train in both, which is awesome. Um, I do have some questions for you kind of more specifically about the learning curve. Um, you did mention that kind of earlier in the talk. And um, what is there like a, a case number that you would say, like, you know, in generally speaking, this is how many cases you should have under your belt? And, you know, how does prostatectomy volume kind of play into that? Because I think we're kind of in a similar space. The more robotic prostatectomies we do, maybe some of those skills and um, understanding is transferred over to cystectomies. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's a good question. It's the, the issue of learning curve is a tough one because it does depend on what you bring to the table with robotic prostatectomy experience. But I think having cystectomy experience matters too. Um, I, I, when I started doing this, I had a lot of cystectomy experience, but didn't have robot. It was right at the beginning of the robotic prostatectomy learning curve for all of us too. So it was a little bit of a mixed bag. But I think having robotic prostatectomy experience is very, very important. And that's why I said I would definitely overcome that learning curve and feel very proficient in that. But I think you, you should be comfortable with an open cystectomy and understand the steps of that. In ours, and again, I think a learning curve is a tricky thing because we always get better, right? We, we get better in our 200th case. So it's not like when you don't get better anymore, but when are you? So when we looked at OR time, uh, the difference, statistical differences stopped at 40 cases. So that was ours, was 40 cases uh, uh, when it was, but it, it was pretty rapid. I think in our first robotic cystectomy, it was about eight, seven, eight hours. And that's compares to a three, three to four hour open. So it was double, and then we brought that down that rapidly. Uh, and then, then it was still a little bit of a difference, but not much. And where in the case do you think you made the most incremental, um, you know, biggest improvement in terms of time with part of the case? Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think at first, I mean, I think the lymph node dissection, when you're not used to doing an extended lymph node dissection, can be a little bit daunting. And that's why I mentioned just get the cystectomy done and maybe do that open. Um, mm -hmm. I think the posterior dissection is just one that we don't do typically and isolate those pedicles. Uh, 
obviously the anterior and the prostatic was kind of the easy part of that. Um, so I think some of the posterior and, uh, and for us it was different things, which I think people don't need to do with like, tagging the ureters or not. We just dealt with things that like we had no idea even where to begin with. Uh, and this, you were showing an intracorporeal diversion and that's something I wouldn't even think about doing this until after you've done and mastered the extracorporeal diversion. Um, we did 120 robotic cystectomies before we even tried this. Um, mm. Because this is going to add even more time as you figure this out too. Mm -hmm. Any part of the diversion now that you want to speak to? I'm, I'm kind of mesmerized by it here where it looks like we're putting the ureter in. Yeah, there we are suturing the ureter. Um, and I, I like to do this now if we do it with uh, like a conjoined anastomosis because you can have both ureters there. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't know if this is better or not. Um, it, it is more time in the OR. Again, I think it's, I, I said this at the beginning, more time matters. And I'm, there are people, I've talked to them that say it doesn't matter, they're under, and I think it does matter. And I'm not that convinced that an intracorporeal diversion, remember when we talk about value, gives us the, the outcomes over that cost of extra OR time. Um, I, I just don't really know. I think there's a lot of inter in interesting aspects to it. Like by doing it intracorporeal, can we do less of a ureteral dissection and thereby kind of preserve the new the, vas the delicate vascularity to the ureters and have less strictures? I think that might be an interesting thought. Uh, but I'm not convinced that the extra hour of doing an intracorporeal diversion buys me anything. The only thing we saw was less morphine equivalence, but nothing that dramatic mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. Um, got a question here from Dr. De La Caille, um, who is curious to know why the left-sided assist port is better for systemic uh, cystectomy specifically versus, you know, prostatectomy where both sides are probably equivalent. Yeah, it's, 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 it, 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 I think she's right about that. It's, it's, I would say it's essential for an intracorporeal diversion to have the assistant on the left. Just the way the ilium is and positions and this, what we're doing here by stapling down and across, this almost has to come from the left side. I think you could mm -hmm. do the uh, robotic cystectomy from the right. So I, I kind of overspoke on the importance of the, it being on the left side. Uh, and you know, we started doing that because we started started doing a laparoscopic prostatectomies in 2000, which if anybody who's done it is a total grunt, terrible operation that should never be done ever again. But, but you were always on the right hand, forehand side, so we, that's kind of why we, we started with on the right side, because we were familiar mm -hmm. with being on that side from that experience. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'm gonna sneak one last question in here. Um, sure. Hoping you can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, patient selection, men versus women. Um, yeah. And you talked about, you know, sparing of the anterior vaginal wall in, in the correctly selected patients, but sort of in the bigger picture with sexual function, you know, female sexual function is actually quite understudied in this area. And what might you think the actual uh, role of robotic versus open could be for, for both the intraoperative considerations and also postoperative recovery? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I, one thing I'd touch on the intracorporeal diversion, you saw us at one point put the stent in. When we first started doing this operation, if I can just take it a moment, I had one of our, our re junior residents, a guy named Jeff Nix, who's now at UAB, uh, was like pressuring me. I was at the bedside and this is all done by our chief resident. And I was just waiting to kick him off the console and tell him we're going to do this open. But it was really, I mean, it's sort of the young minds that kind of pushed us and, and we kept going and, and we, we it, it was working, right? We were doing it and we were work, it was working. And until we got to putting the stents in, and then I didn't know how to put the stents and we couldn't figure out how to do it. And then finally we figured it out because, and, but I remember Jeff in my ear as a junior resident, just kind of goading me on to keep going. And we were able to do the whole thing with it. Um, in any case, that, that's just uh, kind of a little sidebar of like how, how I think, uh, and I, I don't like us grabbing the ureter there. That's a different, but uh, to get to your, your point of the, of the, the uh, a female cystectomy. Yeah, I definitely would wait on that. Not, I think in, in, in open female cystectomies, if you look at series, blood loss and over time is higher. And I don't know if that's, we're a little less kind of facile with the female pelvic anatomy as we are with the male with from prostatectomy experience. But, but that's mm -hmm. open. And I think robotically, when you first do a female cystectomy, it's just, 
unfamiliar robotically. Like I think robotic anatomy is different than like open anatomy to some degree of knowing where things are, where are the ureters and so forth. So uh, I think just the first time I did it, I had one of my uh, gynon kind of colleagues in the room to help me a little bit where, where things might be because they know where the ureters are, right? They're always kind of stumbling into them and ligating them and doing things like that. But, so they're, they're unfortunately familiar where the ureters are. But I, I would do that and have that help. And then, yeah, I think you definitely can dissect posterior. I think robotically is a nice way to do that posterior bladder and perivaginal mm -hmm. wall sparing. I would stay, stay again above the endopelvic fascia because I think you don't, even for a neobladder, you don't need to be below that. And I think there's a mm -hmm. lot of, potential uh, nerves that may play a role, not just with continence and the neobladder, but with sexual function below that. So, yeah, I, I think it's a great way to do it and that you get a great view with the robotics of really being right on the vaginal wall. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Preeti, for your time and taking us through these cases. Um, I think that, you know, wraps up our, our Q&A session here. Um, but uh, and it looks like we're at the top of the hour. So All right. thank you very much for your time. And we'll sure. get this lecture posted on our website soon. Great. Well, thank you, everybody. And, and stay positive and stay strong. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.